thank you for the kind introduction. Um, so nice to be back here. And uh, I was Miss Grisha, but I was just here like 10 minutes ago finishing up one slot, which was a lot of fun. Um, and now um, I think there was like a topic in this like <coughs> five-parter, right? Uh, not, not for me, yeah, I know my topic, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I think somehow I was supposed to fit into some larger topic about um, Jews and others or something. Yeah, sure. It's a little too late to change it. But. The other semester of the Guest Lecture Series is Judaism and Other Cultures, Intersection, Impact, and Influence. And I was later on speaking about Sabbath in the Abrahamic faith. Okay. <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot that way, but thank you. So, um, Anyway, so I was asked to speak on that topic, on the intersection of different religious traditions. Um, and uh, I, um, I think some here were fortunate enough to hear Professor John Levinson speak. Is that right? Um, several uh, weeks ago or something. <coughs> and he, um, I've learned a lot from him. And actually, some of my first sources are from him. So I'll, I'll just touch on them briefly. But he also wrote a really um, a great book on Abraham and the reception of Abra- inheriting Abraham, I think, which is probably part of what he spoke about at his lecture. Um, and uh, I, I think it's a good way to sort of begin, so to begin a little more generally. So some of my opening comments come from largely inspired by Professor Levinson, but then I'll take it to the Sabbath. Um, so he just points out in his book and also a previous article that in Breshit, Abraham plays this <coughs> interesting role of uh, um, where he has a more universal role. I'm about to cough, so maybe can somebody uh, read source A and rescue me? Anybody? Please, loud. Okay, great. And maybe just source B, somebody else, maybe? Just loud. Go ahead, please. <coughs> okay, great. So, in other words, in these two famous sources from Breitsheet, and all our sources are in English, but obviously we know this from the original, from Parsha Lafaka and Bayera, that Abraham or Abram still in these sources, and in source B, he's being shifted, his name's being. Um, um, change to Abraham, uh, we see a certain universal role for Abraham, right? Where his name is going to be, um, where I w- uh, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What that means exactly, Levinson discusses how Jews and Christians have tended to translate this verse in different ways, but still there's clearly some broadening of Abraham, or of Abraham in source A, and then in source B, Again, you will be the father of a multitude of nations. And historically, of course, we know that the three great uh, religions that we know in the West, there are others, but three of the great ones consider themselves as Abrahamic religions, um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And the question is, how much does that really bring us together? The fact that we're all Abrahamic. Sounds like a very nice idea. Uh, We live in a world that's more, hopefully, more multicultural and more 
sensitive to differences and also more uh, realizing a need to understand the other. I actually get to teach a class on Judaism, Christianity, Islam hosted in a law school so that, that very fact just shows that there's a sense in law schools today that we have to understand other cultures and traditions um, and that we could all trace ourselves back to Abraham sounds like uh, wow, we really do share much in common. Uh, the Rambam in, uh, in the guide um, has a passage where he says there's no doubt, this is source C that there are things that are common to all three of us, I mean the Jewish, the Christians and the Muslims, namely the affirmation of temporal creations of the world the validity of which entails the validity of miracles and other things of that kind so here in guide 171 the Rambam is talking about the three faiths and he talks about we share some things in common here he doesn't mention Abraham, but we could of course say that, but he talks about the affirmation of the temporal creation of the world and then he says that leads to miracles so creation and miracles actually I think we could do a better job at coming up with a list what do we share in common? Jews, Christians, Muslims one God one God, okay good although Christianity gets a little more complicated in certain versions what else? Sabbath, Sabbath. that sounds good maybe, okay what else? What? Prophecy. Okay, nice. What else? Afterlife. Afterlife. Good. What else? Yeah? Torah. Well, Islam has a Quran, secret scripture. Scripture. Good. What else? Laws. Good. Even Christianity, which we often think doesn't, of course, has a rich canon law tradition. What else? This is it. This is what I'm doing for the next hour. It's <laughs> all like this. I didn't prepare. Geography. And, although now we heard the, the title. Geography. Uh, it's certain sacred land. Oh, we literally share the same turf that we fight over. Okay, good. A certain sense that there's an ethical behavior that man is supposed to live according to, and there's a sense of providence that man is watched for his behavior and is rewarded or punished, both as the individual and the collective. Not just an afterlife but there's also collectively a messianic era that we're marching towards and that the world has a mission and we're going towards some progress towards that and onwards. So there are obviously deep uh, affinities between these various traditions and there's also all sorts of borrowings um, and adaptations. Okay, So there's obviously a lot in common and Rambam just signaling to some that of course he knows a lot of this stuff. Um, and yet, here we have uh, these three passages that uh, these D&E uh, Levinson weighs uh, on and F I, I provide but um, I think helpfully juxtaposed to D&E of what they each say about Abraham so just very briefly and we'll do this part quick so we'll get to the Sabbath D um, this is from the Quran so, O oh people of the scripture, why will you argue about Abraham when the Torah and the gospel were not revealed till after him? Have you then no sense? So the Quran rails against Jews and Christians for making claims about Abraham. Because, why? Abraham predates Sinai and Abraham predates Christ. Jesus. Maybe Christ is a different story, but Jesus, okay? So Abraham predates that. So what, what are you talking about Abraham? How do you know? Now, when you read this, just detach. You're like, okay, doesn't he predate 
Muhammad also? Okay, that doesn't bother the Quran. Um, in a way, that seems sort of, it does seem a little funny, but, you know, when you're within any one faith, of course, your faith makes a truth claim. Okay, 66. Lo, you are those who argue about what there, that whereof you have some knowledge, why then argue you concerning what you have no knowledge? Allah knoweth, you know not. And 67. Abraham was not a Jew, nor yet a Christian, but he was an upright man who had surrendered to Allah. He was not of the idolaters. In a word, Abraham was a Muslim. Okay, good. Romans, E. Is this blessedness then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? So who gets the blessing? The blessing of the righteous, the blessing of Abraham. Who gets it? Do you have to be circumcised like Abraham was? Or even the uncircumcised, even the Gentiles, Paul asked in the letter to the Romans. We say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. So, that Abraham had faith, that was before the chapter of Abraham's circumcision. So, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that had, had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised, and those who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the answer of the circumcised. So who is Abraham? Well, he's the father of all who believe, whether they have circumcision or not. Believe what? Better to the Romans. Believe in Christ. Abraham's the father of all believers in Christ. Abraham is a paradigmatic Christian. And we Jews have this too here. I'm using a text, the later text, probably earlier text along these lines, but this one I think just clearer. Rambam himself, Maimonides, in a letter, top of page two. I received the question of the master Obadiah, the wise and learned proselyte. You ask, if you too are allowed to say in the blessings our God and God of our fathers, yes, you may say all this. So the question is, can a convert, when they say a bracha, a blessing, say, Elokeinu v'elokeinu v'elokeinu? Can the convert say that God is the God of my forefathers, my ancestors? But that's not true, technically, biologically. Rambam says he can. Right? This is a mission. It is an issue that comes up in Fazal, and Rambam takes a clear. Fazal discuss it. He takes a clear debate. It. He takes a strong stand. Yes, you may say all this. The reason for this is this: that Abraham, our father, taught the people, opened their minds, revealed to them the true faith and the unity of God. Ever since then, whoever adopts Judaism and confesses the unity of the divine name, as is prescribed in the Torah, is counted among the disciples of Abraham our father. So what does it mean? God and God of our fathers, God of Abraham? Well, the convert also can say Abraham is their father. Because Abraham is the father of all those who adopt Judaism, confess the unity of thy name as was prescribed in the Torah, etc. Because Abraham is the paradigmatic Jew. So each one of these religious traditions 
who uh, build themselves as Abrahamic, by Abrahamic, as Levinson argues at length in his book, they mean something very specific. Each one of them means a different Abraham. They all trace themselves to Abraham, but they're three different Abrahams. There's Abraham the Muslim, the paradigmatic Muslim, and the Quran, there's Abraham the paradigmatic believer in Christ. In the letter of Romans and in Christianity is Abraham, the father of the Jews, the paradigmatic Jew in rabbinic um, teachings and in Judaism. Yeah, quick question and then move on. Yeah, yeah I was wondering why um, you would say the Ramam here kind of comparing it to the Quran. Because the Quran, I... Uh, uh, yeah, no, and, and, and Levinson does. I just feel like the, the texts he cites to me are less explicit and I feel like this does capture certain uh, mode of thought. But that's fair. They're sort of yeah, uneven. Yeah? I'm sorry, say it one more time. Yeah, maybe being a Korean. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Now there's the Romans taking a stand on that issue. Right. That's exactly right. That the original issue comes up in the context of the Korean. Um, whether you could say the Bidu. Um, and uh, whether you could refer to Arabi or etc. Um, okay, good. So now I want to turn to sort of, sort of this background. Uh, it's a spot seven minute background. The background was uh, just to show you that in some sense all these religions share much in common. They are indeed Abrahamic and that's sort of a signal for that they share not just Abraham but much in common. And yet, of course, when you talk about um, religious traditions, especially ones that have you know, sort of complex genealogies in the sense that you know, Judaism and Christianity, keenly aware of Judaism, but trying to supersede Judaism. And then Islam, keenly aware of those two religions and then trying to um, supersede them. They have this sort of complex intertwining. So there's much a share, but there's also, uh, you know, profound ways that they differ. And even in the share, sometimes that sharing, um, while at a very general level of abstraction might be helpful, but if we get more specific, it might be somewhat illusory because what they do with um, you know, any given doctrine might be quite different or even dramatically different. Yeah? No problem. Well, I, I would Levinson in his book talks about some of this stuff more. I, I want to sort of maybe if we could 
track it as this, if that's okay, just because I want to get to Shabbat, that's the main sources. But it, it's a good point, and I think it's a possible reading, but I, I think, you know, that's my main bibliographic reference. Yeah. It's a recent book, which I thought was about to Yeah, last maybe on this, and then we'll be on. Yeah. The national and a religious. Yeah. All these things come up in this book. So for those who are asking great questions, um, you might gain more from it. But there, there are good questions, or there are different, I think, ways to sort of take our tradition. Um, I want to talk about Shabbat. So here, uh, if you look at the question, so the question sort of is, is this an example of something we share or ways we're different? If you could skip for a minute to a uh, page five, um, in a sense I'm going to talk the least about Judaism today because I'm assuming that A, because the truth I could get away with it. <laughs> and B, because I'm assuming you know something about Shabbos. Um, so I want to maybe uh, expand a little our knowledge base about um, Christianity mainly and a little bit Islam about um, Sabbath. But uh, let's begin with a Bahá'u'lláh rabbinic source. So page five on the bottom is a midrash, and I I, I, I actually brought it from Tosfot cites the midrash. I didn't even give you the rabbinic literature reference and uh, sort of, I didn't do the whole critical work on it. But in a sense, it's important to me that Tos was citing it. In other words, it's a living midrash that has currency in medieval times, that they know this midrash. So page five on the bottom. Um, I'm hoping that we're looking at the same. We don't have page numbers. It's Roman numeral four. Do you have one copy of... Uh, yeah. Do we have one copy? Okay. Uh, it's okay. Okay, you'll just tell me where we're at. So page, uh, Roman numeral 4A, right? Does that work? Yeah. Okay. Three testify concerning each other. Okay, fine. Oh, it is actually? Okay, great. Three testify concerning each other. God, Israel, and the Sabbath. God and Israel testify that the Sabbath is a day of repose. Israel and the Sabbath testify that God is one. God and the Sabbath testify that Israel is unique among the nations. Now, in a way, this isn't so startling, right? Oat, you know, and we know that there's a certain something special. In other words, this is, sometimes we think, you know, right, the famous uh, Kabbalistic trope of Israel, Kutsabrichu, and Oraita, the Torah. Here, the triad is God, Israel, and the Sabbath. So it's just that Sabbath is a sign, yes, but that that's sort of, you know, uh, that they're mutual testimonies, and especially what it's testifying, that Israel is unique among the nations. So in a way, I'm almost beginning as a question slash almost marking this as a possible polemical statement. Is it really unique among the nations? Aren't there other nations that have a Sabbath? Aren't there other religious traditions that have a Sabbath? Is it really so unique? Thank you. Not yet. Um, yeah, but my point is, Tosfot is quoting this. 
look at it. You know, this is a living theology in medieval times. Um, yeah. And yes, during the, the age of Tosfart. There are other, right. Yes. Exactly. So that's what I'm saying. In a way, I, I'm suggesting uh, that maybe there's a certain emphatic polemic here. And no, that Sabbath actually marks us, us Jews, and not others who have, you know, this uh, uh, simulation. Um, that is, uh, uh, you know, an illusory overlap. No, Sabbath isn't for the Abrahamic, it's for the true followers of Abraham, the Jews, and our Shabbat. So perhaps that's sort of some of the polemic connotation here. But with that sort of background, and just as a suggestion over there, let's um, dig into some Christian sources um, and then briefly turn to some Islamic sources too. Actually, I, I think I'll be Christian and then get back to some rabbinic sources and then at the end more briefly just touch on Islam. So here, and this is definitely an incomplete source sheet. Um, but it's enough for our purposes. Um, okay, let's. Okay. Um, anyway, if you don't have, don't worry. It might be outside. Um, okay, so here's a uh, um, from uh, a famous passage from the Gospels. Okay, so uh, the Gospels, just very, very briefly, the background on the Gospels, just in terms of dates. So there are um, there are four Gospels in Christianity. Again, if you know this, I apologize if it's uh, um, a little too basic, but just brief background. The four Gospels, and three of them are interrelated. All the Gospels, Gospels are telling the good news, the good news of Jesus of Christ, um, the advent of the new... Um, um, Savior and founder of the New Testament and the New um, the New Covenant. Good. So three of them are interrelated: Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Those are known as the Synoptic Gospels. Um, and by Synoptic, we mean that they can, like a synopsis, you could line them up side by side and have plenty of overlaps. John tells, you know, quite a different account of uh, of, of Jesus's life and mainly death. So in other words, the Synoptic Gospels really tell three things. Jesus' life and briefs, a little background and briefly about his life, but more about his death. So the trial and all that, thanks so much. And, uh, the, and then the you know, resurrection is different. Account of different versions. Okay, so uh, that's the Gospels, and they're all dated to first century CE. Mark is usually considered, maybe always considered, the earliest of the Gospels. Uh, so Mark is probably dated uh, to around 70 CE or so. Um, so uh, Mark over here in a passage that appears in all the Synoptic Gospels, but we're looking at Mark's account, tells us the following very famous episode. One Sabbath, he, meaning Jesus, was going through the cornfields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. We're reading this in English. The original is obviously not English, it's Greek. Okay, but we'll take it with English. So it was a Sabbath, and he, Jesus, is going through the cornfields, and also his disciples. And when they went through the cornfields, they were plucking grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, 
why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? What they're doing is pretty bad, right? It's pretty egregious. He's plucking grain on the Sabbath is obviously a no-no, right? If we have to put it into terms of Lamatem Malachot, right? That's a pretty egregious violation. Coats there, right? It's, it's clearly violating the Sabbath. Now, whatever, you know, that's sort of an important question. Because the Lama Ted Malachot are the way Chazal tell us in the Mishnah that, you know, with total confidence we can only date to around 200 C. This is an earlier text. But I'd say it's sort of irrelevant because clearly from the context, it's clear that this is seen by the Pharisees as an egregious public desecration of that. Right? So I think uh, clearly in Pharisaic eyes, this is Chilol Shabbat. 25, and he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiatar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Okay, let's pause right over there. So what's Jesus' response to the Pharisees? Excellent. I was going to say in a word, and that's exactly right. The word is precedent. Okay, now let's just unpackage the drop. What's the precedent? It's a precedent from, actually, from David, from Tanakh, from Scripture. So it's a scriptural precedent. And the scriptural precedent, you can look it up. Indeed, this is in our Tanakh, right? Jesus knew his Tanakh pretty well. We have to try to match wits here. Okay, we have to know our Tanakh well. And he said that David, when he was hungry and in need, entered the house of God, meaning the temple, and ate priestly bread, which normally, of course, you would think is forbidden to be eaten. So what justifies that? Because he was hungry. Presumably by hungry, he means he and his companions were like really hungry. Although we would like to know how hungry Jesus really thought they were. Like, were they starving hungry? Or were they just like, I could really use like a late night snack hungry? Then he doesn't tell us exactly. But apparently they were hungry enough that they ate something that was unlawful. So apparently the argument is from precedent. It's precedent from an authoritative source. It's looking to Tanakh and saying, in Tanakh you see that Halakha has more flexibility than might appear. There aren't just absolute rigid rules. The rules always have to be weighed in their circumstance. And in circumstance of need during a period of exigency, Halakha actually has more give. There is more flexibility. And later, of course, we know about this because there are notions in the extreme circumstance of Pikuach Nefesh. And Pikuach Nefesh is Dokat. Basically, all of Halakha, except for very rare examples, which it's not. So, certainly, if it was a, a dire need, like a type of Pikuach Nefesh, that would be justified. And he seems to be arguing something along those lines. Now, what exactly he's arguing along those lines, scholars have given a lot of that. 
Okay, here uh, if you want to read some good scholarship, Menachem Kister has written on this, and recently Aaron Shemesh, and many, many others. I'm quoting you more the Talmudists who've written on this, but they're also all sorts of Christian scholars. But I, I, again, I'm writing a little, I'm talking a little bit the overall impression. The overall impression from 24, from 25 through 26, I think, is that Jesus is speaking, at least my sense. Again, we're also looking at Mark, Matthew, and Luke have somewhat different versions of this in the parallels. But at least in Mark, the sense is that the initial response is within the sphere of, I would say, a type of almost Pharisaic discourse. Right? You could debate, yes, the halakha, but we have a precedent, precedent, you know, from Tanakh, it's true, it's more Nach than Torah, but okay, that happens certainly sometimes in Chazal where you'll see types of proofs or at least supports, and also there's a certain uh, reason to it, although again, we don't know exactly how hungry David was, and we don't know exactly how hungry Jesus and his followers were, but he's certainly implying that there's certain analogous, it's not just walking through cornfields and plucking and reckless abandon, but there's some need here too, and you're just mischaracterizing what we're doing and it's reasoned through. There's, so there's precedent, there's text, there's reason. All of this is very Pharisaic, I think, a response. Yeah, maybe a few quick reactions. I'm sure we could debate about some of this stuff, but uh, quickly let's hear just a reaction. No, to, yes. it, it don't, we have to remember that the Gospels are written um, to convince. Right. Um, and that, you know, that... Um, we don't really know. These were written. Um, if you say You're right. They're not neutral. Year seventy was forty years after this happened. Yeah, and we're so not talking about historicity, and so yeah. um, it was, uh, you know, to convince an audience to become Christian. Right. So this was very powerful to say that the laws weren't. So we have to, you know, we we, don't, we could take it well, not with a grain of salt exactly, but. It's a great comment, but I think in a sense, it's specifically for the reason you're saying, it's interesting that at least so far, the discourse is not, at least in our caricature of what we necessarily think is Christian, it's pretty a Pharisaic response. Yes. But, but, yeah. but there are, in the message, there's the preservation of the Sabbath. Right. Nobody was going about Exactly. So the idea, that, exactly. So right. so far it's Pharisaic and good. We should add that too. And then the sense, I was going to do that at the end, but the sense is, so to be a good follower of Jesus, of course you keep Shabbat. Mm. Of course you keep the Seder Shabbat, which is included in Seder Shabbat, is of course you don't pluck rain. Okay, a lot of comments and a lot of sources. I'm not sure exactly how to navigate this. I mean, I'm going to be a little tough, but I'll just take one more and then we'll move forward. But certainly feel free to, uh, you know, continue... Um, Interesting. There's certain aggrandizing, there's certain uh, precedent, possible. Yeah, that is one interpretation that people have sort of seen it almost even as a kingly motif. Some Christian scholars have read this passage that way. I, I, I see it less that way, but there, you know, certainly in the history of exegesis, some have seen it along those lines. Um, yeah, okay, 27. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath.
here, if we debated 25, 26 a little bit, I think here we probably could have more debate here in different stances, different senses of what it stands. So I'm going to share what, the way I understand it, and of course you're invited to um, you know, uh, understand it differently. And of course here, to do this right, you want to go through the Greek and you want to look at the three different versions of all of that. Here we're just going to use what we have in front of us to be a little bit more impressionistic, although a little bit I'll allude to some issues that scholars have talked about. Well, just two issues to flag that scholars have talked about in 27. 27 is a bit of a long verse, and the question is, is it really one argument? And I was 25, 26, fine. And then 27... Okay, let me just back up. I see 25 and 26 as one response, and then 27, then he said, as a different response. All explaining the action. But to me, 27 is a very different type of explanation, justification, response in 25-26. Scholars have flagged that in 27 itself, it's a long verse, and maybe 27 has a compound element to it. Maybe there are two dimensions to 27. So maybe the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. That's an argument. And then, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Maybe that's even a third argument. I'm reading them in a conflated sense. The other key issue is son of man. Because that's obviously a crucial term. It's obviously a reflexive term, I think, here Jesus is talking about himself. The question is what he means when he calls himself son of man. And here, just in the, you know, the polar extremes, again, a ton of scholarship on this, is does son of man mean just another human being? Okay? And sometimes that phrase can have that connotation. Or is son of man like the son of man? Okay? And especially in Daniel, in Daniel, in Zion, that phrase is used. And the phrase in Daniel, the sense is a type of supernal, like the Son of Man, a type of almost angelic type of a figure, a figure with revelatory capacities. So I think most scholars, again, it's such a loaded passage, you're going to have everything that's stated, but I think most scholars tend to go with that latter reading. So assuming that latter means Son of Man means this angelic, revelatory, the special Son of Man. Then Jesus seems to be saying something along the lines of this. Let's read it one more time. Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, meaning Christ, is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I think the sense here is a much more um, dramatic and revolutionary response to the Pharisees. Here, he's not engaging in a Pharisaic discourse of halakha, of scriptural precedent, of logic about rules and exceptions and their you know, dire circumstances. But maybe the gist of it is, Pharisees, you have it all wrong. Pharisees, in this rule, in this legal-based notion of religion, right? you're actually inverting the priorities. Right? You're making humankind subservient to the halakha and to the Shabbat, but it's exactly the opposite. All the laws and all the rules are just are facilitating. And they're supposed to facilitate humanity and humanity's relationship, and the implicit there is in its relationship with God. And all the laws and all of that are just, they're just means and they're just media towards that end. So the Son of Man, meaning here I, Christ, am coming to teach all that truth. I 
this teaching is the Lord of everything, Lord even of the Sabbath and the understanding of what the Sabbath is. So at least that's a possible reading, and if you at least uh, you want to at least consider that, then what would emerge in this passage is two very different responses. The first response is, yes, of course, Jesus and my disciples need to keep Shabbat, including Hilchot Shabbat. Right? Just you got to learn a little bit more Shulchan Aruch. The second response is, you have it all wrong. So is there a notion of Shabbat in that second response? Yes, maybe, but a totally, I think, reconfigured notion of what Halakha is. I mean, gesturing at a much more radical a New Testament, a New Covenant, where all these rules and all these ideas, you know, at best are a certain sort of framework that facilitates, but really you have to reorient, and they have to be prioritized in a totally different kind of a way. Scholars for a long time have pointed out source B, here in Roman numeral 2, source B. Where Roman numeral 2 says the following, Whence do we know that in the case of danger to human life, the laws for the Sabbath are suspended? So this is a very famous passage in Babli Yoma, which asks, What's the source of Pikuach Nefesh Docha Shabbat? The fact that on the Sabbath we suspend in the case of dire circumstance. And it gives a, uh, a, you know, a whole litany of answers. And one of the answers is, for Yonasan, son of Joseph, and there's a parallel Machilta that has under a different name, I think under Rabbi Natan, said, for it is holy unto you. If the Sabbath is committed to your hands, not you to its hands. So scholars for a long time have noticed that now, does that sound a lot like what Jesus is saying in verse 27? Right? That's quite amazing. Although, clearly, in the Bavli context, or in, even in the Midrash Halacha, what that slogan means is not my Christological reading of it. So what I might even show you is that embedded in 27 is a type of a reasoning that can be more... Um, um, contained. An idea would be, in other words, the Sabbath commit to you, not you to its hands, meaning, so therefore in an emergency, you make the accommodations in halakha. So in other words, even within 27-28 of Mark, there might be an underlying slogan that's more conservative or more narrow, but I do think embedded within 27-28, it has this more radical um, dimension to it, at least arguably. Okay? But, so we pause right now. So what is in Christian writings? We're just seeing some highlights. What's attitudes towards Shabbat? So at least in the New Testament, in one very famous passage, of course, there's a very famous passage right after this where Jesus heals the, the shriveled hand of the sick man on the Sabbath. So that's also relevant. There are other passages that are relevant. But just from this passage, what seems to emerge is either a reading where followers of Jesus do keep the Shabbat and even some Hilchot Shabbat, but have a certain more flexible attitude towards the type of Pikuach Nefesh, or perhaps gesturing at something, a more radical reconfiguration and reorientation. Okay, now we skip to source C. So we're moving forward to origin, 2nd century C. Now a bunch of these sources are coming up. Actually, the origin sources come from an article by uh, 
Professor Shai Cohn is also uh, who I, uh, my doctoral advisor, so definitely want to give him good, due credit. And he's written two recent articles on some of these topics. Um, so um, this passage from Origin is really interesting. Here it is. Indeed, what could be more... So a very famous church father in the uh, uh, second century um, in Alexandria... Um, and other places too, I think. Okay. He says the following. Indeed, he writes a commentary on the book of Romans. What could be more impossible than the observance of the Sabbath according to the letter of law? For it is commanded not to go out of the house, not to move from one's place, and to carry no burden. Because the Jews who observe the law according to the flesh also regard these things as impossible they contrive certain inept and ridiculous interpretations. Okay, let's pause. So what's he saying in this passage? So here we're engaged already in real polemics. Origen is mocking those who have a carnal, literal, physical understanding of the Torah and its mitzvot and its halachot, especially Jews. And he says, in this passage, that if you try to literally observe certain mitzvot or halachot, you'll try to do something that's impossible. So, for example, and this is really this rich passage which Shai Khan wrote about in one article, that his examples are really not so obvious, I think, to some of us, but they're interesting. He thinks certain halachot are just impossible. So you're basically a fool if you try to physically, literally follow the halakot. So what's an example? One of them is, how can you keep the Sabbath according to the letter of the law? Now, don't do labor, presumably, you could do. So what's he referring to? So he tells us the example of not to go out of the house, not to move from one's place, not to carry any burdens. Some of this is in the Torah, all you'd say, Ishmim Komo, etc. Some of this is referring to Nach, Yirmiyahu, talks about carrying and other things. So he says, how can you literally, the Torah says, don't move from your place. You're literally not going to move from your place on the Sabbath? That's absurd. Were well, you going to sit there frozen in your seat? Don't, don't we say this about Karaism? Yeah, okay, interesting. So he says, um, to do these commandments literally, that's ridiculous. And of course, he's saying, don't take them literally, rather take them metaphorically, metaphorically figuratively. Okay, good. Now he goes on, though, in this passage, at the end, he says, because the Jews who observe the law according to the flesh, right, they take it carnal, literal, physical, also regard these things as impossible. They can try certain inept and ridiculous interpretations, for example, Erev, or Tzchoer, 2,000 Amot. Right? The Jews know that they can't literally stay in their home for the entire 24 hours, or stay in their bed, or stay in their seat. So they also say there's a certain zone that they're allowed to go in. So what does he think about that? That's ridiculous. That's Baba Mises. That's made up. So Origen's critique of keeping Hilchot Shabbat literally is either it's impossible, or it requires bringing in a certain 
filter of interpretation that is inept or ridiculous in his words. Okay, and part again, this is polemics. Is it so ridiculous that the uh, notion of a place means a certain zone, a certain area, a certain definition? Actually, Chazal, and this is a tradition that predates Chazal and Qumran, also we see this have a certain notions of a certain area, and some of this is actually taken from verses um, um, where it comes from, from Arei uh, Levi'im, and the notion of definition of a place. I, I think we, you know, a little bit, and, and Showing you my cards, whose <laughs> side I'm on, okay? But I don't think we have to totally be, uh, succumb to Origen's mockery. But either way, that's Origen's point. By the way, in the continuation of the passage, which I don't bring to you, he actually almost contradicts himself, where he quotes this amazing passage, where he quotes Docephius, the Samaritan, who would stay in his seat for 25 hours, 24 hours on the Shabbat, which he says is impossible. But he knows the tradition of one crazy Samaritan who stays in his frozen seat for 24 hours, which is the way sometimes we think about the Karaites or other traditions. Fine. Okay, so when we read Origen, we get the impression by the 2nd century, you see at least this leading church father is saying, keep Shabbat in any literal sense? That's ridiculous, right? It's figurative, it's metaphoric. Now wait, let's just go through this. So what's figurative and metaphoric? What is figurative and metaphoric? So let's turn the page and see what he says. D. On the Sabbath, everyone sits in his place and not, does not leave it. I'm in the next passage by origin. What then is the spiritual place of the soul? Its place is righteousness, truth, wisdom, holiness, everything which Christ is. That is the place of the soul. The soul ought not to leave its place if it is to keep the true Sabbath. Take, take 20 seconds read that again to yourself. So he takes this verse from Shmot that you have to stay in your place on the Sabbath, don't depart your place. And he starts reading it through Christian lens. It's not carnal, it's not literal, because that would be impossible or nonsense. So what is it? It's figurative, it's metaphoric. So what is its figurative and metaphoric understanding? Don't leave your place on the Sabbath. So what does that mean? So what's, what's a metaphor? What words in that verse are a metaphor? Your place, for example, is a metaphor for your your state, your spiritual place. Good. And don't leave your place means don't stray from your spiritual, pristine spiritual condition. What else is a metaphor? Everyone is the soul. And what else implicitly is a metaphor in that verse? Have to keep Shabbos every day. On the Sabbath! Sabbath is also a metaphor. What, it's only on Saturday that you have to be truthful and, not, and holy and wise and uh, close to Christ? Always. You always, I mean, it's aspirational, but that's the uh, spiritual aspiration. So everything gets allegorized. Sabbath 
So we know, I'm just summarizing briefly, but we basically know that in early Christianity, it's a little bit in the New Testament, but more in the writings of Paul, that there's this real critique of normative Judaism and all its halachot, and then this really gains much traction in, uh, you know, at least a lot of streams of Christianity in the 2nd, 3rd century. Not all, but a lot of them. And then the question is, what do you do with all the halachot in the Torah? So just very generally speaking, the two main strategies. One is the halachot are literal, but that was for a certain kufa, a certain period. But since the advent of Christ, they've been superseded. And the other strategy is the origin strategy. Take all those halachot and don't read them in a literal carnal way, but rather read them in an allegorical way. So when it comes to Shabbat, that really is what becomes the main dominant approach in Christianity. Keep Sabbath? So already in the in New Testament there's some chipping away. Keep all the rules, literally all the rules, etc. And then there's alluding that something may be more dramatic, but over time that's certainly the direction. Sabbath is understood as a metaphor for a certain spiritual condition that one always aspires to be in that Sabbath state of being proximate to Christ. So then there is no Sabbath. So why is there a Christian Sabbath? So here we have to concurrently follow a different story again. We're sort of generalizing and caricaturing a little and seeing some highlights. E, Book of Acts. So the Book of Acts, which is, um, you know, also part of the New Testament, part of the writings um, that tell us about the Council of Jerusalem and tell us a lot about Paul, Okay. Um, often seen as um, the same author of Luke is often considered to be the author of Acts 2. So here in E, so it's a first century work. On the first day of the week, when we met to break bread, Paul was holding a discussion with them. So here's one of not so many sources in early Christian meaning, New NT, New Testament writings, that talks about the first day of the week. First day of the week being Sunday. So Sunday, they would break bed, and Paul was convening. In other words, uh, the, the disciples were gathering. So there seems to be something about Sunday. In the book of Revelations, also in the New Testament, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a, lo- a loud voice. And this is commonly understood also as a reference to Sunday. So here in New Testament, in a few spare references, there seems to be this early understanding among uh, Jesus and some of Jesus' followers and, and Paul and the Pauline circle that there's something special about Sunday, or Sunday is the Lord's Day, the day of breaking bread. Again, just some spare hints. Now we'll fast forward a little bit. So here we have the Didache. Didache is actually quite an early work. It's a fascinating work. I actually, if there's one that new work that somebody wants to go home and read, go read the Didache. Not long. Didache, I think, is dated around the year 100 CE, and it's basically the short 16 brief chapters, very brief, with early Christian teachings, and if you will, some halakha. It's almost a normative work, which is interesting because it should disabuse us of this idea that Christians don't have halakha, because it's true, a lot of Christianity develops more in this allegorical, more spiritual, more faith and grace, 
and salvation and suffering and redemption and all that stuff. But there are some uh, normative strands too. Um, and this is one of the important texts that has a more normative dimension. It has a little more of a complex redaction history. Scholars think it actually is composed of a Christian component and another part that's more of a Jewish Christian component. So it might actually be stitching together two, even though it's a short work, it actually seems to be a composite of two different works. Okay, either way we have the following passage in the Zaki. So I'm starting with 8 and then skipping to 14. Let your fast not, there's a typo there, coincide with those of the hypocrites. This work is telling Christians. They, meaning the hypocrites, fast on Monday and Thursday. You, though, should fast on Wednesday and Friday. So who's fasting Monday and Thursday? The hypocrites being Jews. By the way, this is really interesting because we think of this as like something that in Shebel that they do, but you see it's a really old tradition. Monday, Thursday fasting. So the Pharisees or the Jews, they fast Monday, Thursday. But we Christians, we do Wednesday, Friday. Okay. Thus, this is a little sort of comical because it's, it's almost just, re, it's basically the same exact thing, but we're going to mark and highlight that we're different. So we're going to do the same exact thing as fasting, two-day fasting, two days every week, but deliberately different days. Then 14. Now I'm cheating a little bit by juxtaposing 8 and 14, and I was sort of question, is 14 the same? I think at least it's a good argument to make that 14 has the same type of an impulse. Assembling on every Sunday of the Lord. Break bread, give thanks, confess your fault besides, so that your sacrifice may be clean. Let no one engage in a dispute with his comrade. Join you until uh, they have been reconciled, lest your sacrifice be profane. So, 14 does not set up an opposition, but I'm just wondering if we could imply an opposition. You Jews, you do your Saturday Sabbath. We Christians, we have our Sunday, perhaps. But either way, we learn that Sunday is a thing. It's the Sunday, it's the Sunday of the Lord. You break the bread. And what else do you do? Well, you give thanks, you confess your sins, you're reconciled, your sacrifice and not you know a literal you know that your sacrifice may be clean a type of a maybe the Eucharist is the type of the sacrifice the breaking of the bread okay yeah something along those lines okay now we have Ignatius also actually we have two texts of Ignatius I'm trying to move along here search H is Ignatius and then there is a pseudo Ignatius who wrote much later. So this is a 1st century C work, and then we have a 3rd, 4th century C work that actually imitates and elaborates on this point, but I'm just bringing the 1st century work. If, therefore, those who are brought up in the ancient order of, or have come to the, or, that's a typo, have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in observance, uh, observance of the Lord's day. So what I was suggesting might be implicit in the Didache, I think is explicit over here, not to say the polemic, but sort of the key awareness that we're weaning among us Christian followers some Sabbath observers who are Jews, and now in, its, in lieu, in its place, we have observance of the Lord's Day. So already quite early, in other words, this is quite interesting, as much as there's assailing the Jewish Sabbath, attacking its halakot, 
and it, keeping it and taking it literally and you know uh, that there's really a, one day of the week of cessation and certain rules and regulations exactly concurrently there's actually the emergence of the Lord's Day a Sunday as a literal day of the week which has certain sacred status to it when you do certain special spiritual things. What exactly are those special spiritual things? So we just have some spare hands, but it seems you gather, it seems you break bread, it seems there's a type of atoning, there's probably a type of prayer, things along those lines. So Saturday is not literally, but in lieu, there's this emergence of Sunday and some awareness that one's replacing the other and that there's a weaning of some from one towards the other. Ah, the Emperor Constantine, so now moving forward in the story of the Christian Sabbath, we have this 4th century important decree where Constantine makes a decree that all judges, townspeople, and all occupations should rest on the most honorable day of the sun. So this is a really important piece of historical data that enters into the story. Because Constantine, who we know, converts to Christianity, the great Roman emperor Constantine, converts to Christianity in 312 or 313 CE, okay? and then he makes this decree that no working on Sundays. Now it's a bit of a discussion what's the background to this decree. Is it animated by his conversion to Christianity? Or, I think most scholars actually trace it to older Roman pagan customs of Sunday was more their market day and their day of, you know, of gathering. I don't know exactly market, but in other words, is a day that had its own pedigree to it in the Roman world of Roman civilization, but now there becomes a law. And then I just finish the point. And so the point is, either way, whatever its impetus or motives, there's a Roman law now that Sunday is a day of no work when the Roman Empire already at this time is largely a Christian empire and then officially becomes a Christian empire by the late 4th century, then you have this Christian empire that has an official rule of no work. So now what you have is a certain convergence that on the Lord's Day, that Christian Sunday, there's also, at least at certain points, by imperial edict, a regulation that you have to refrain from work. Yeah, quickly, question, so Thomas. Time's time a factor here. Verse 14. Yes. What is the word in the original for that, that we are translating as Sunday? Um, the day of the sun. What was what was the days of the week called back? Yeah, that I uh, hmm, I that I don't know. Okay, we'd have to double check that. But yeah. It says all occupations. You think that included slaves, and servants? Yeah, <laughs> my guess is yeah, probably not right. So that there's a significant difference. Yeah, for sure. And even this, you know, how much is all observed and all that, I don't know. But I know there is this overlay that has started actually, that's what I'm trying to say, whatever its motivations is, there's a type of um, simulation suddenly that Sunday's more and more a day where, because now what I'm, basically the larger story I'm trying to tell is there's an attack on the Jewish Sabbath and the notion, you know, moving away from one distinct day, but now this emergence of Sunday as a special day, but then the question is, in what day is it special? Way is it special? So, so far we've seen various features, but now there's a new feature, which for whatever motivation is also going to be superimposed of not working. 
Okay, so over time that has to at least inform certain thinking about, or certain experiential dimension of what happens on the stage. So now let's move on to Jerome. Jerome, of course, the leading church father, um, fourth century, I believe, fourth, fifth century, double check the exact dates. He says the following, they, the Jews, did no servile work on the Sabbath. We do none on the Lord's day. Okay. Um, so, I'm, I'm, uh, so Jerome the translator. Yeah, the exactly. Uh, Vulgate translator. Exactly. Fourth century. Exactly. Okay, good. So fourth century. So here, there's a, a clear um, categorical opposition, and literally on the point of working. They Jews don't work on Sabbath. We don't work on our Lord's day. So obviously polemic, but now we have to ha- appreciate some of the irony that's emerging here. And now there's a distinction of one day, and that one day is also starting to have the very features of the Jewish one day. I'm going to hold off on comments because I'm told I, I only have a few minutes. So please ask me afterwards. Now we have Ephraim. Ephraim, again, I don't have the exact dates, but all this stuff's around 5th. You could double-check these dates. You Google search them. But it's all around 5th, 4th, 5th century. Ephraim says the following, Honor is due to the Lord's day, the firstborn of all days, for in it lie hidden many secrets. Pay our respect to this day, for it has taken away the right of the firstborn from the Sabbath. Again, implicit, explicit polemic. Blessed is he who honors it with spotless observance. So now you have this idea that you have to be Shomer Shabbat. So what does it mean, spotless observance? The law ordains that rest be granted to servants and animal in order that laborers serving girls and employees may cease from work. While our bodies rest, it does indeed cease from work, but we sin on the day of rest more than on other days. So there is this idea of Shomer Shabbat, of Shvita Min don't do work. And here you have it, even the employees, even the laborers, I don't know if it's servants, but uh, even servants, etc., don't do work, but then a certain hint that there's a certain problematic, but we sin. We don't do work, but we sin. Now this idea actually starts to get amplified in Christian writings at the time, this idea of sin. So let's see source L. The rule of Benedict. On Sundays, likewise, all shall apply themselves to reading, except those who are assigned to various duties. But if there be anyone so careless and slothful that he will not or cannot study or read, let him be given some work to perform so that he may not be idle. So here, in other words, and here are the exact dates, but also locations. All this is interesting. What I would say, if I have to almost psychologize, it's, there's almost this anxiety of what do you do on the Lord's Day? How do you fill it up? And sometimes we have this in our long Shabbos afternoons in the summer, right? Am I allowed to play ball? Am I supposed to take a walk? This is to hopefully learn some Torah. What do you do exactly on the Sabbath? And especially in a world of halakha, we know maybe we have too many rules of what we can't do, and then maybe even positive we can. But in a Christian world, that's more and more treating this as a special day. So maybe in the morning you go to, you know, mass or Eucharist or some service. But what do you do on this Lord's Day exactly? So one option is to try to sort of simulate this idea of. 
you know, secession, uh, uh, refraining from labor and work. But here we have sort of this other thrust of do positive. Fill the day. So what should you fill, fill with? Reading, duties, and that's probably, you know, sort of welfare and social duties and chesed and kindness. But if you become slothful, the idleness, okay, better to work. So there's an idea that the day should be one of not working, focusing on, I guess, spirituality of sorts with certain types of uh, ideas. But if you can't, then, okay, you work. Okay, because there isn't really halachot of lo Last source I want to read is Augustine and then one Jewish source. And then I'll stop. So I'm sorry, we won't get to Islam, but let me just bring it back to the Jewish stuff. Um, the truth is that uh, this is a richer story I have with the, the Christian stuff. Islam is a little of a harder connection and more speculative. Um, Augustine tells us the following. You are told to keep the Sabbath in a spiritual fashion. So this is, you know, the great St. Augustine, so we're talking about like uh, late 4th, early 5th century. You are told to keep the Sabbath in a spiritual fashion and not by bodily inactivity as is the custom of the Jews. Okay, even though I complimented him, he's going to attack us. Okay, so he says, keep the Sabbath in a spiritual fashion, not in that physical, that is coming back to the motif of the Jews. They only wish to devote themselves to their pleasure and revelries. Jews are too carnal. So they don't work. And what do they fill the day with? Pleasures and revelries. And in some uh, uh, Christian writings, like in Pseudo-Ignatius, there's a clear allusion here. We'll see where where Augustine takes it. He's a little more um, prudish in this passage. But some of it is to... Um, the Jewish practice of cohabitation on the Sabbath of sexual pleasure. Here he talks about in the following fashion. The Jews would do better by working usefully on the land. Like do something. Do some work. Than by sitting discontently in the theater. Okay? <laughs> Jews go to the theater. Okay? I'm sorry, I see the hand, but i, I got to keep going. And their wives would do better to spin wool on the Sabbath day, right, that they avoid doing that malacha, than to spend the whole day shamelessly dancing at home. Wow! Sounds like quite the Sabbath in Carthage in the 5th century. Jews are in the theater, they're dancing... Uh, this is some wild fantasy. Shai Cohen, in this, one of his articles, has this interesting question of, were Jews really doing this stuff? And these passages he struggles to find. He shows some interesting, there are some corresponding passages in rabbinic literature, obviously not to this level um, of theater or dancing at home, but there are some interesting passages. I could point you to some of them if you want. Um, where there's some hints that Jews do things somewhat along these lines, but this is but, but, so back to the story. So the story that uh, I'm trying to tell here is that in Christianity over the centuries there is emergence of this day. And then there's this really interesting, this Sunday, not this Saturday, but this Sunday, what is its nature? So I think clearly there's this background of you know, coming together, of prayer, of confession, of Eucharist, of breaking bread, etc., but the question is, okay, but it's a whole day. How do we fill up that day? And here there are almost two different types of strategies or hints at what emerged. One, to continue to totally imitate, ironically, 
the Jewish way of refraining. It's a holy day, so you refrain. While the others is to continue engage in the polemic in the ways we're different. So their days are all about their rules and what they refrain, but the ironies, at least in this polemical characterization of what Jews do, that they could follow all these rules, but there's no spirituality and there's no you know, um, um, uh, sobriety to it. But if anything, it's just frivolous and even sinful. While the Christian way is to orient it towards especially the matters of the Spirit. The last passage I want to bring to attention and juxtapose with this off and is the Talmudic passage from the Yerushalmi. Now this I do speculatively, um, but I think it's interesting to at least read it in light of these sources we just saw. So this is source C in Roman numeral 4, Sabbath and Judaism source C. So there's a whole Yerushalmi Shabbat that says all sorts of interesting things about the Shabbat. And the question is where this stuff comes from. So first there's this debate about what should you do on Shabbat and festivals. Let's just look briefly at highlights quickly in one main part. Rav Chagai, in the name of Shmuel Bar-Nachman, Sabbath and festivals have been given only for eating and drinking. Rav Barachia, in the name of Rochia Bar-Abba, Sabbath and festivals have been given over only for people to engage in them on study of Torah. So here is a really interesting sort of part of what we're missing. I mean, this source is maybe well known to us because we know this comes from the Bible and the Rambam, but it, it's an interesting, it's sort of the exact filling in that question. Okay, you refrain, but what really turns it into a special holy spiritual day, and how do you fill it? And here there's this really interesting debate. Is it through eating and drinking, family, you know, community, etc., more physical, more pleasure, or is it really that you should meditate? Right? So Lahabil, just the way Ephraim says you should read, so too in the rabbis they say you should study and read. Now, of course, uh, the dates might be a little bit off. This is probably slightly earlier than people like Ephraim, but the question is, in other words, there could be an, this could arise organically in an inner way that Jews are trying to ex- understand for themselves how to best keep this day. But I'm saying if you contextualize it in a world where there's a Christian assault on the rules of Sabbath, or you could follow all the rules and still there's a real void there that could even lead to sin and how do you fill it in positive ways, that's an interesting sort of background to think about this. Now in that first paragraph, possibly, I think that idea becomes a little bit more compelling in the third, fourth paragraph. So said Rabbi Abahu, it is the Sabbath to the Lord. Observe the Sabbath as does the Lord. Just as the Holy One, blessed be He, observed a Sabbath in regard to speech, so you should observe a Sabbath in regard to speech. And here there's interesting, I'm just going to very briefly allude to three pieces of scholarship on this, if you want to look into more. I'm just going to spit out names here. Okay? Um, but we have the uh, uh, work of Aviat Stallman, recent work, and also uh, Ricky Hittery, who some of you have known, has done some work on some of this stuff. And then there's also a more classic um, article of Yitzhak Gilad. Some of that has to be background. Here is really the Gilad, let me just say a word, this idea of not speaking on the Sabbath. So Gilad reads this as, don't speak about commerce. And he tries to show that there's a very old notion, very old, 
of not speaking about Sabbath. It's actually in Yishayahu, and he tries to show there's a real halacha of not speaking. So maybe that's what's going on. Don't speak about business. Just like God didn't speak about creation, so you two don't speak about business. The question is, is that what's really going on here? Now, in the next paragraph, it does sound that way. Okay, because the next paragraph says somebody didn't speak about his business and he got rewarded. So perhaps that's the context. Even there, I would question a little bit why this started amplified and reemerged now in third, fourth century as the scheme. What I think is most striking in these last paragraphs, with this I conclude. Sedrab Chanina. If you're listening to that last sentence, I'll explain in one more segment. Let's read two more paragraphs. Sedrab Chanina. It was only with difficulty that sages permitted greetings to be given on the Sabbath. Said Rabchia Barba, when Rav Shimon Bar Yochai would see his mother chattering a great deal, he would say to her, Ima, it's Shabbat. Okay? Clamp up a little bit. You're yapping too much. Okay, it's a great passage. <laughs> Mom was gossiping a little too much at the Shabbat table. And Rashbi couldn't take it anymore. Okay, that's the story. But the question is, where is this great story coming from? And why is it being told? So here I'm just throwing out there. Because here, you're not in the context of speaking about commerce anymore. So there seems to be this real vigilance about not speaking. And I would say, in a word, the whole theme here is frivolousness. That you can be around the Shabbos table and just turns... It becomes like this lowest common denominator. It becomes cheap and light and the opposite of spiritual. And I'm just saying it's really interesting, I think, to think of this contextually in a world of a Christian critique that is really homing in on that real danger. That having this day of cessation can lead to slothfulness, nay sinfulness. And what a true Lord's Day is a day that's meditating on God's Word and that is focused on confession that's not going to theaters or dancing but is elevated. So the timing is a little bit off but I would also say that any one text is probably more capturing a certain flavor, a certain concern or an idea and therefore I do think at least we can open that up to the possibility. So let me just summarize what we've done. And then we're done, and you're happy. Uh, feel free, please, to common question afterwards. I, I try to just begin with a general discussion about how much Abrahamic religions should be seen as sharing something or actually are starkly different. The closer they are, they're also different in all sorts of ways. And then I got in deeper with one example. And just giving highlights, no doubt the full story is more complicated, but I think even from the snapshots, we see a really interesting tale. And it's the tale of the Shabbat. So we began with this Jewish source that Shabbat speaks to the uniqueness of the Jews. And then we really saw that the Christian attitude, the Christian, that's obviously generalizing, but a line of Christian attitudes towards the Jewish Shabbat really has an interesting, almost ironic tale to it. That early on, there's this complexity in the Gospel account, whether Jesus is being more flexible at Shabbat or really challenging its priority. Then we know there's certainly this movement to read the Shabbat of the Jews in a totally non-carnal, non-literal sense. And then even to the point where quite early it turns into an allegory, there's nothing special about that one day. 
But then ironically, alongside of this, there suddenly is an emergence of one day, albeit a different day. The Lord's Day Sunday. Its origins might begin with that today of congregating or other things, but very early on, Christian writers start to juxtapose that Lord's Day Sunday and use it as an opposition to Saturday. Just like the Jews have their Saturday, we have our Saturday. And then the question is, well, what happens on that Lord's Day, that Sunday, that Sabbath day? And here there are various sources. Is it a day of congregating, going to you know, church, and praying and confessing and Eucharist, or is there more if it's an entire day? And then we saw that there's this Roman regulation already that also factors in about what you can or can't do on that Sunday. And then really in the 4th, 5th century, we really have two uh, gesturing at two different types of approaches. One is, just like the Jews have their Sabbath with its refraining, so too we are Shomer Shabbat, and we refrain, including refraining from labor. And then there's this other approach where, no, we don't refrain, but we actually fill it, and we fill it in ways that are very different from them. Because look at them, they keep their halachot, but ultimately they lose its spirit, so we'll focus on its spirit, and we don't have these halachot. And then the very last source I found to bring in is, can there be a certain seeping in or awareness in a, you know, sort of a cross-fertilization that this polemic leads to deeper meditation within Jewish sources about how to fill Shabbat in a positive way and how to keep it um, focused on elevated ideas and not, God forbid, to be... Um, um, to fill out the accusation that it's a day that's sort of an empty shell, but really it has its rules, but it also is filled with its spirit.